For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of the sermon, The Children of Promise, our text, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. In the opening eight chapters of this letter, Paul has now given us a masterful exposition of the gospel, the free and gracious justification of an undeserving sinner through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law. Paul says the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by his faith. Now, both Jew and Gentile in the gospel, both Jew and Gentile are confined under sin. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. All of mankind bears the weight of the curse. They are under the curse of the law. They are under condemnation. There are none who are good. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. Therefore, Paul concludes that by the works of the law, by your works, by good works, no one will attain to a right standing with God. No one will be justified in his sight. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's through the law that there is the knowledge of sin. We must conclude then, Paul says, that if anyone would be justified, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, Old Testament or New Testament, man or woman, young or old, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free, if anyone would be justified, he is justified freely by the grace of God through the redemptive work of his son. He is justified freely through the imputed righteousness of his own son. And therefore he is justified freely through the means of faith alone in his son, apart from any works of the law to the praise of his glory. There is one God. He is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. And he has determined to justify both Jew and Gentile alike through the means of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this way that elect Jews and elect Gentiles will together inherit the promises of God, the promises that God has made to Abraham. Now with that truth, I hope that truth, I pray that truth is soundly established in your hearts and minds. That is Paul's point, Romans 1 through 8. With that south, that truth soundly established, Paul then addresses a very critical and a, a deeply personal concern in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. If the gospel is the free and gracious justification of an undeserving sinner through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law, and if that gospel means the salvation of the Gentiles through faith alone in Christ alone, then what has become of the physical and ethnic descendants of Abraham? What has become of Israel? What has become of the covenant? Paul, if what you're saying is true, then unbelieving and apostate Israel is surely cast off and God has abandoned his people. If the promise 
that God made to Abraham is fulfilled on the basis of a spiritual relationship through faith rather than fulfilled on the basis of a physical relationship through the law, then hasn't God actually abandoned the people of the covenant? Hasn't God actually broken his promise to Abraham and to his seed? Paul, you've said nothing will separate us from the love of God. What of God's professed love for Israel? What of all the promises that God has made to Israel? You can see the problem, can't you? That Paul is addressing. God has said of Israel that I will love you with an everlasting love. That's what God said to Israel. Well, has the word of God, has that word of God come to nothing? And what of God's professed love for us? He's essentially said the same under the new covenant. What of God's professed love for us? You can see the problem. With this problem in mind, you can also see the deeply personal nature of that problem in the opening verses of this chapter. Paul acknowledges, he acknowledges that the nation of Israel is unbelieving and apostate. Paul knows that they're going to perish unless they turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And he himself would perish in their place if he could. Verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. The depth the, the constancy of Paul's anguish, of Paul's sorrow, is magnified by Paul's understanding of Israel's condemnation. He knows where they're going to go, what's going to happen to them. He knows they're going to perish in hell if they do not turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul knows And it's that knowledge that fuels, if you will, his grief and his sorrow about them. Doesn't the unbelief and apostasy of Israel mean that the word of God to Israel has failed? If they're unbelieving, if they're apostate, they've been cast off, so to speak, according to their words. Doesn't that mean that the word of God has failed? Doesn't this mean that his promises to Israel are meaningless? Even the Gentiles, even the Gentiles could point to Israel and say that God's word had been brought to nothing. So it's this implication that Paul flatly rejects. It's an implication that he now confronts in verse six. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It is not that the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but rather in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of the God of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul expresses the anguish of his heart for his countrymen For ethnic Israel, verses 1 through 5, his great sorrow, his continual grief, verse 2, is due his knowledge of the judgment that awaits them for their unbelief and their apostasy. However, despite their unbelief and apostasy, it is not as though the word of God to them has failed. He begins verse 6 with that contrasting conjunction, that little word, but. And he uses that conjunction to make his point. He grants 
Hear me now. He grants that Israel is unbelieving, but he rejects the implication that their unbelief means that God's word has somehow failed to them. That God's word has ekpipto, taken no effect. Literally, it means having become ineffective. It's like a, a ship that's run aground. God's word has not been aborted. By word of God here, verse six, Paul isn't referring to the Bible in general. He's referring to the promises of God to Israel in particular. Specifically, he's referring to the promise that God made to Abraham and to his seed through the covenant. God is referring to his covenant promises. Skeptics, unbelieving Jews, or unbelieving Gentiles would hear the gospel that Paul was preaching, the gospel of God's free justification of sinners through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and they would point to Israel who had rejected Jesus Christ and essentially say, if what you're preaching is true, Paul, then God has abandoned his covenant with them. Do you see the problem? And God's covenant promise, the promise that he made to Abraham, that promise has failed. If Israel is apostate, if Israel has been cast off, then God's promise to them has failed. Now that's an objection that Paul is going to have to answer if he wants to preach the gospel to Jews. If Paul is going to get anywhere with his countrymen whom he wants to be saved, Paul is going to have to answer that objection. It's also an objection that Paul is going to have to answer if he wants to mitigate the damning influence of the Judaizers. And we've encountered them before, haven't we? The Judaizers have been wreaking havoc, predominantly in Gentile churches, saying that faith in Christ was not enough. Faith in Christ is not enough. God's promises were made to the circumcised. Do you see? God's promises were made to those who fulfill, who keep the law. And if you believe the gospel that Paul preaches, then God has abandoned that covenant. And if you follow the gospel that Paul preaches, then God has abandoned you. To the churches of Galatia, Paul says, I marvel, marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is really not another. But if there, uh, there are some who trouble you, these Judaizers, and they want to pervert or corrupt the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul says to them, Paul says to them, if you become circumcised, then Christ will profit you nothing. There's a lot hanging on this issue, right? This is not a mere academic exercise. Heaven or hell hangs upon this issue. Life or death hangs upon this issue. We need to understand these things. The Jews of Paul's day needed to understand these things. The Judaizers, their error needed to be confronted. And Paul's going to confront their error with these things. Paul said, I, wish, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. You understand what he's saying? If you seek a righteousness that comes through the law, if you seek right standing with God on the basis of your good works, if you believe these lying Judaizers, then you are a debtor to the whole law and you are under its curse. Only those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. That's the point that Paul is going to get to. Only, only those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You see, this is a gospel issue. Amen? It's a gospel issue. But listen, even dispensationalists today, 
would argue that if God does not fulfill his covenant promises to ethnic and national Israel, then God is unfaithful to his word. A dispensationalist would say that if God does not fulfill his promises to an ethnic and to a national Israel, then God is unfaithfulness, unfaithful to his word. He would have broken his promises to Israel and he will have abandoned his people, the people of the covenant. So if you think with me then, the Jew would charge God with unfaithfulness. The Judaizer would charge God with being duplicitous. The dispensationalist would charge God with being unfaithful. The Pelagian or the Arminian would charge God with injustice. Some would charge him from misunderstanding, others from malice, from malice or pride or self-righteousness. Paul will address all of these errors in this section of text, and he begins in verse 6. Paul begins or refers to the implication in verse 6. Physical and national Israel is unbelieving and apostate. They have rejected their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The nation is lost. And in verses 1 through 5, Paul mourns their condition. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ did before him, their house has been left to them desolate. What remains then is the new covenant people of God. All those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, whether ethnic Jew or ethnic Gentile, whether Old Testament saint or New Testament saint, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation set apart by God's elective, electing purpose, and united to God's son. But, verse 6, but all of that does not mean that the promises of God to Israel have failed. It does not mean that God is somehow unfaithful to his word. On the contrary, you have to understand the plans and purposes and promises of God. On the contrary, verse 6, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, having raised the implication then, Paul now states his premise. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. That's a, a statement that would have absolutely shocked the Jews. Would have, they, they might, frankly, not have been able to get to anything else. That, that statement would have rattled their cage. Uh, it would have shocked them. They would have asserted that physical descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made you an Israelite. And being a physical or ethnic Israelite made you a child of God. And being a physical Israelite and therefore a child of God would have entitled you to all the promises of God that God had made through his covenant with Abraham. The Jews were profoundly and tragically wrong. They had it wrong. Now notice with me, in his premise, Paul is using a play on words. Paul uses the word Israel in two different ways, with two different meanings. He uses the word for children or the word for seed in two different ways with two different meanings. Paul speaks here of physical or natural Israel, and Paul speaks here of spiritual Israel. Paul speaks of the natural or the physical descendants of Abraham, and Paul speaks of the spiritual seed of Abraham. And Paul's point is obviously this from the context. Not all of the physical descendants of Abraham, not all of them are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Do you see? 
Not all of the natural children of Abraham are the spiritual children of Abraham. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. They are not all spiritual Israel who are the physical seed of Israel. Nor, verse 6, are they all spiritual children because they are the physical or natural seed of Abraham. There are physical Jews. Listen, there are physical Jews who are not true Jews. There are natural born children of Abraham who are not the true children of Abraham. And their physical descent does not entitle them to the spiritual blessings promised to Abraham and to his spiritual seed. Now, who are, who are the spiritual children of God who are heirs of the promise? Seed of Abraham through faith. They are the heirs of that promise through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the implication of Paul's point is this. The implication is this. There is then a spiritual seed of Abraham that is distinct from the physical or natural seed of Abraham. Do you see that? And that spiritual seed of Abraham, which is true Israel, transcends physical Israel and includes believing Gentiles. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's what Paul's going to get to in this section of text. That spiritual seed of Abraham, which is true Israel, transcends the physical seed of Abraham and includes believing Gentiles. For in Abraham, the gospel says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this, of course, if you think with me, we've got to think through these things, right? This, of course, is the very same point that Paul raised to the Jewish formalist in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Well, this was some time ago now. Do you remember these texts? <laughs> Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Did you catch that? He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Really clear, really straightforward point that so many are somehow confused over. Paul could not say it in any clearer terms. John the Baptist certainly understood the distinction. John the Baptist got it preaching to the Jews in the wilderness of Judea in Matthew chapter three. In verse 9, John said this to the Jews, Do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't say that to yourselves. You can't claim that. For I say to you, John says, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Mere descent from Abraham will not save you. Every tree which does not bear good fruit, the fruits of a genuine and saving faith, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down. John says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and he will baptize with fire. 
is winnowing fan. It is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist is preaching that to Jews. Do you see? So Paul grieves over the lost and apostate condition of unbelieving Israel. They will perish if they do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. However, Paul rejects the implication that their apostasy means that God's word has somehow been, has somehow failed or that God has been unfaithful to his covenant promises to Israel. Why? Why? Because not all those who are the physical descendants of Abraham are actually the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Not all Israel are Israel. And only the spiritual seed of Abraham through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, only those are true Israel. Only the spiritual seed of Abraham are the children of God and heirs of the promise. Clear? All right. Having raised the implication, having established his premise, Paul now begins his explanation. Verse 7. They are not all spiritual children of God because they are the natural or physical seed of Abraham, but rather, as the scriptures explain, Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. It all begins here. Paul explains that in Isaac, your seed shall be called. If you remember the account in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham will have two sons, Isaac, born to the free woman, Sarah, who is Abraham's wife, and his other son, Ishmael, born to the bondwoman, Hagar, who is Sarah's handmaid. Both are the physical sons of Abraham, and Ishmael is the firstborn. However, God had said to Abraham that his wife, Sarah, would bear him a son, in her old age, and that it would be Isaac with whom God would establish his covenant. Verse 15, Genesis chapter 17, verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. She will not be the mother of nation, singular, and it shall not be singular kings of that singular nation that shall be born to her, but kings of peoples, kings of nations, plural, shall be from her. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and he said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Traditional logic would say no. (laughs) And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Sarah herself would say, "Mm, rather not. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Right? Abraham doubted. But then God said in verse 19, no. It would be in the extraordinary providence of God that God would intervene in grace and in power to provide Abraham and Sarah with the son, a child of promise. Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, Sarah now gives birth to Isaac 
And that in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, and in verse 8, the child grew and he was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing to Abraham's sight because of his son, his firstborn son, Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice for in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Do you see the quotation in Romans chapter nine, verse six in Isaac, your seed shall be called. In other words, what, what is Paul doing in quoting this passage? Paul is not bringing forth just that quote or just those words alone from that one portion of Genesis chapter 21. He's bringing forward in the quote, the entire context of that promise of God to Abraham, the entire context. We're to understand this in its context to understand Paul's quote in Romans chapter nine, verse six. The Lord promises to make of Ishmael a great nation then in verse 13. But listen, what the Lord does then in sending Ishmael away is establish his covenant with the one son of Abraham, who is the spiritual heir of the covenant promises. He establishes his covenant with the one son who is the child of promise. Although you have two physical sons, Abraham, it's in your son Isaac that your seed shall be called. Now back in Romans 9, think with me about that now. Back in Romans 9, what Paul asserts then by quoting this text in Romans chapter 9 verse 7 is that Abraham had two sons. Abraham had two sons and he asserts that Ishmael was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac was. In fact, Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. And yet Ishmael did not inherit the covenant. Ishmael did not inherit the promises that God had made to Abraham. Ishmael was cast out. Isaac was the child of promise. And God had determined to establish his covenant with Isaac alone. And the covenant promises would flow through Isaac to his spiritual seed. Now, Paul is going to make this point again, and he's going to narrow his focus throughout the course of Romans chapter nine here. Right now, he's focused on Abraham and the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. And it's in Isaac, in the spiritual seed of promise, the spiritual child of promise that God is going to fulfill his promises in the covenant. Verse eight, then Romans chapter nine, verse eight. That is, Paul clarifies, Those who are the children of the flesh, like Ishmael, these are not the children of God, but rather the children of the promise are counted as the seed, Isaac and not Ishmael. In quoting Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, Paul points to the earliest expressions of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, and he quotes that text to show that God had established his covenant with the one son to the exclusion of the other son, even to the exclusion of his firstborn son. And God does this so that God might demonstrate 
He does this so that God might demonstrate that the physical or the natural children of Abraham have no claim to the covenant promises of God based upon physical or natural descent. Do you see how those things connect? God did that to show that the physical descendants of Abraham have no claim to the covenant promises of God based upon their physical descent from Abraham. It's going to be to the children of promise that God fulfills his promises. Do you see? They cannot think to themselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now think with me. That means then that there is another principle at work. There is another principle on which God determines who will inherit the promises. There's another principle at work toward those who are counted as the seed. There is another basis on which the spiritual seed of Abraham, those who will inherit the promise, there is another basis on which they are to be distinguished from the physical seed of Abraham, those who will not inherit the promises. The children of promise, verse 8, are distinguished from the children of the flesh in the very same way that Isaac was distinguished from Ishmael concerning the covenant. There's a principle at work that distinguishes the descendants of Abraham, those who are the children of promise, from those who are the children of the flesh. Those who will inherit the promise are not determined by physical descent. The seed is not defined through natural generation. That's where the Israelites had it wrong. They had it wrong. True Israelites are not the children of the flesh. Do you hear Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 28? True Israelites are not the children of the flesh, but rather the children of promise are true Israelites. And it is these children of the promise who are counted as the promised seed. It is the children of promise who are the children of God and therefore heirs of the covenant and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What is the principle then? God does this through promise, through covenant. What does Paul mean by his use of that term, children of the promise? In his explanation of his point, Paul then quotes another Old Testament text in Romans chapter 9, verse 9. For this is the word of promise. Verse 9, at this time I, God, will come and Sarah shall have a son. Turn back to Genesis 18 now. Genesis chapter 18. We're going to make this point. I pray that it's clear to you and then we're going to draw some application. Genesis chapter 18 We have to remember in considering these Old Testament references that Paul is making his point from the entire context of the passage that he's quoting. Genesis chapter 18, three men are visiting Abraham. We know these three men to be the angel of the Lord, uh, who will be called the Lord in our text. And that being the pre-incarnate Christ, and then two angels with him who are on their way to Sodom, on their way to Gomorrah. Verse 9, Then they said to him, Abraham, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. He said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, (laughs) well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? 
saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And here's the word of promise quoted in Romans chapter nine, verse nine. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son. Abraham and Sarah, both way past the age of childbearing. And there is no way that this happens without God's gracious intervention in fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham. This is not going to happen apart from extraordinary grace. Abraham believed God for his promise and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham received an imputed righteousness on the basis of his faith alone. In other words, now, among the two sons of Abraham, according to the flesh, Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac is distinguished from Ishmael as one brought forth according to the determined will and purpose of God himself in accord with God's own covenant promises to save his people. Isaac was the one who was brought forth according to God's decreed will to save a people to himself and to conform them into the image of his own son. Isaac was the one who was born in accord with that determined will. And far from being an indication that God has somehow abandoned his promises to Israel, God's covenant dealings with spiritual Israel through Isaac, rather than merely Israel according to the flesh, God's covenant dealings with the children of promise actually validates and actually vindicates God's covenant faithfulness to his word. It doesn't undermine God's faithfulness. It doesn't communicate that God is unfaithful to his word because he failed to fulfill those covenant promises to a physical descendancy. No, it actually supports God's faithfulness to his word. It actually vindicates God, God's character and validates God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Isaac was the child of promise. Ishmael was a mere child of the flesh. And the principle of grace and the principle of faith It was at work in and through God's covenant dealings with Abraham. Those are the same principles of grace and faith that are at work through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same principles of grace and faith. And God is seen to be eminently faithful to his word. Galatians chapter 3 verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. So what then, what then are we to make of the physical seed of Abraham under the old covenant? Now think with me, we got to think through these things. Paul wants us to think through these things. What are we to make of the physical seed of Abraham under the old covenant? God had entered into a physical covenant of circumcision with Abraham's physical seed. Isaac and Ishmael were both circumcised according to that covenant. The Mosaic covenant would be added added later, Paul says, because of transgression. All of Israel would be placed under a tutor, under the tutelage of the law, so to speak, until Christ came. So what does Paul say then about the physical descendants of Abraham under that old covenant? The covenant of works or circumcision made with Abraham, the covenant of works, added under the Mosaic administration. What does Paul say about the physical descendants of Abraham under that covenant? A covenant that they clearly broke. Although it was meant to be typological 
We'll talk about that at another time. That covenant of works only meant to point Israel to her need for a Messiah, to her need for a Savior. And Israel, being ignorant of God's righteousness, Romans chapter 10, through that promised Messiah, and Israel seeking to establish then their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Their only hope, their only hope is a righteousness that comes through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And those natural or physical descendants of Abraham who reject the gospel of God's own son, even though they are under that old covenant, they are therefore aligned with Ishmael rather than blessed with Isaac. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. In thinking of this example of Isaac and Ishmael, Paul explains himself in Galatians chapter 4. Paul in Galatians 4 is writing to largely Gentile churches across Asia Minor. But these Gentile churches were being assailed by the error of the Judaizers. The Judaizers, remember, they were saying that faith in Christ was not enough. God's promises, they were made to the circumcised. God's promises were fulfilled to those who keep the law. And if you believe the gospel that Paul preaches, then God has abandoned the covenant. Now, what does Paul say? Verse 21. Tell me then, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. The bondwoman was Hagar. Her son was Ishmael. The free woman was Sarah, and her son was Isaac. But, verse 23, he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. And he who was born of the free woman, Isaac, he was born through promise. These things, verse 24, are symbolic. For these women are, they represent, two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, that covenant of works, which is represented by Hagar. She gives birth to those who are in bondage to their sin under the law. Do you see? Sinai is represented by Hagar. For this Hagar, verse 25, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And not only does she correspond with Sinai. She also, verse 25, corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. Do you see that? And that Jerusalem, which now is in bondage with her children. Did you catch that? The covenant given by God to the physical seed of Abraham at Mount Sinai corresponds to Hagar, the bondwoman. It represents bondage and slavery, slavery to sin. It is meant to point the Israelites to their need for a savior, their need for grace, their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to point you. The law is meant to point you to your need for a savior. You don't look into the law of God and think to yourself, yeah, I got that. (laughs) You're a fool. If you think that any righteousness could be attained to through the law of God, through the law is the knowledge of your sin. 
and you are confined by the law in bondage to your sin. And that is for the purpose that you would abandon yourself under the law and that you would flee to the cross of Jesus Christ for mercy. You need a savior. And that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Jesus Christ alone. Do not say to yourself, I have Christian parents (laughs) for my parents. (laughs) The covenant given by God to the physical seed of Abraham at Mount Sinai corresponds to Hagar and bondage. It represents bondage and slavery. And verse 25, it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is in Paul's day, the physical descendants of Abraham. In other words, The mere physical children of Abraham, according to the flesh, correspond to Hagar and Mount Sinai and bondage. Jerusalem is in slavery with her children, in slavery under the law. And who are the children of Hagar? Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites. Paul is saying... That those physical descendants of Israel, those physical descendants of Abraham, the the nation, if you will, of Israel, those are not the seed of promise. Those are not the chosen people of God. They're not the ones who are going to fulfill, get the promises fulfilled to them. Those are Ishmaelites. Why are they Ishmaelites? Why would Paul use such strong terms? Because they have rejected their Messiah. They have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Their Messiah has come to them and they have turned him away. They're Ishmaelites. And anyone who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ is no better than an Ishmaelite. You're in bondage to your sin and you will perish. If you die in your sins, you will perish. Spend an eternity in hell. Verse 26, but rather, right? In contrast, the Jerusalem above And we're speaking now of spiritual Jerusalem, right? The heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above is free. And she is the mother of us all. The heavenly Jerusalem corresponds with Sarah, the free woman, Isaac, the child of promise. And Sarah, the free woman is the mother of all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, you and I here, an overwhelming majority of us, Gentiles. (laughs) Gentiles. And brothers and sisters, as Gentiles who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are an Israelite indeed, (laughs) Jesus Christ would say, a true descendant of Abraham. For it is written, verse 27, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. That's not only a shout out to Sarah, that's also a shout out to Gentiles. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. In other words, God has blessed the spiritual seed of Isaac, the spiritual seed of Sarah through Isaac. Now we brethren, verse 28, and he speaks to all those who have put their faith in Christ with believing Abraham. As Isaac was, we are children of promise. Did you get that? (laughs) As Isaac was, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he was, we are children of promise, who is true Israel. We are. We are. We are true Israel. Verse 29. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. In other words, when Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, even so it is now. Nevertheless, verse 30, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman, cast out her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. In other words, those who claim for themselves a mere physical descendancy from Abraham will not inherit the promise. But who are those who inherit the promise? Those who with Abraham believe and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Old Testament saint, New Testament saint, same. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Ethnic Jew, ethnic Gentile. Likewise, those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the children of the bondwoman? Unbelieving Jews. Who are the children of the free woman? All those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and inherit the promise. Who are those who inherit all of the promises? Listen, who are those who inherit all of the promises that God has made to Abraham and to Abraham's seed? Who inherits every one of those promises? Those who share the faith of believing Abraham. That's you and that's me. Those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. True Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not replacement theology. (laughs) That's fulfillment. That's promise. That's glorious. And again, Old Testament, New Testament. Those who put their faith in God's promised Messiah. Ethnic Jew, ethnic Gentile. Those who have put their faith in God's Messiah. A people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Remember, the families of the earth blessed in believing Abraham. Elect Jews, elect Gentiles, Old Testament and New. And that includes you. If you have turned from sin to trust in him. What does that tell us, brothers and sisters? That tells us, one, that anyone, anyone who would dare to make some foolhardy charge that the God who created the heavens and the earth would fail to be faithful to his word, that is a deplorably and disgusting charge. God is faithful to his word. Amen. His promises will not fail. And just in the, the infinite wisdom of God, these redemptive plans and purposes... (laughs) this book was not written by men. You can't get five guys in a room to agree on anything, much less that glorious theology. God is faithful to his word. And just as God, every step of the way has fulfilled his promises, especially in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will certainly fulfill all of them that remain. God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to the covenant that he has made with Israel. All praise, honor, and glory to him who saves us by his grace. Amen. Pray with me.
Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for your covenant faithfulness. We praise you, Lord, for your, faithful, for your faithfulness to your word. We praise you, Lord, that you cannot change. You cannot lie. That having decreed the end from the beginning, you will most certainly bring to pass all that you've decreed. We praise you and thank you. And our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. We praise you. We're grateful to you, Lord, that you have predestined us to be conformed into the image of, his, of your Son. We praise you, Lord, that having chosen us in love, having determined to set a distinguishing love upon us, that you in time have called us to yourself, giving us a new heart, renewing our minds, dwelled us with your spirit, that you have justified us by forgiving us of all our sin, by imputing the righteousness of Christ to us as a free gift of your grace. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, that you have glorified us. That's spoken in the past tense as though it were already past, as though it were already, as though it had already been accomplished because it has. And Lord, because it it will most certainly uh, come to pass, we praise you and thank you for these precious promises. And we, Lord, put our faith and our trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, your own son, whom you have delivered up for our redemption. Lord, and we trust you uh, to preserve us and to keep us until he returns, knowing, Lord, that we, your people, cannot be separated from you, cannot be separated from you by life, or death. Uh, There's neither height nor depth. There is no created thing that will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We praise you, Lord, that you'll preserve us until that day and pray, Lord, for that day to come quickly, that we might with unveiled eyes, face to face, worship and praise you in eternity. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who is unconverted, who is just stubbornly, obstinately, foolishly plodding along in this life after the the slop that is in the pig trough. I pray, Lord, that they would turn to Jesus Christ in faith and inherit true riches with your son and his people, with the sons of the kingdom. And may they be saved for your glory, for his everlasting praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.